Well, if you have your Bibles, let's open them to Exodus chapter 32. This is the eighth and final message in our series, The Wilderness, where God shapes his people. Last message. Oh, well, then what are we doing next? Let me give you a little bit of a preview of what's what's to come. I've already mentioned to you that next week, Rob will be unpacking the why behind this, these four better together steps that we're taking. And so then the week after that, I will be here and I will be introducing and giving an introduction to the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, which, which sermon might that be that I'll be introducing? What would it be? Guess, the Sermon on the Mount. So two weeks from now, uh, we will be stepping into a verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter biblical exposition of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, you know, that's going to take us, y'all, all the way to Easter, just so you know, those three chapters. We like to be in a gospel, because we teach through books of the Bible. We like to be in a gospel every four to five years. It's time we want to be in a gospel. Y'all, when we sat down and began to outline Matthew's gospel, we got to the Sermon on the Mount and realized, y'all, it's going to take us 28, if not 30 weeks to teach the Sermon on the Mount. And so we stepped back and we felt, you know, rather than trying to take the whole gospel at this time, we're gonna take Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and spend 28 to 30 weeks listening to the words of Jesus as he explains what it means to follow him. I am super excited and I am terrified. Here's what I mean by terrified and may I invite you to get terrified with me. In the coming week, or, the, or next week before we do this, I, I mean this when I say it, I want to invite you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Before you read it, I just want you to open up your Bible and I want you to say, Jesus, show me what it means to follow you. And then start reading and feel the weight of his words. I'm telling you, you will not find one place in there where he says, I'd like you to think about something. No, you will find him commanding us to do something for this is what it means to follow him. Uh, You can't, I'm, I'm excited in this way. You can't understand the Sermon on the Mount, I, I don't believe, and remain unchanged. There's no way. So I, I look forward to how we're going to be changed in those months in that sermon. It's the same where we are. You know, we're in Exodus 32. We're with uh, Israel in this journey through the wilderness. You, we, we're not in this just to learn what they did and why they did it. We're, we're, we're always in the word to be transformed by it. And in these stories, we're taking lessons that they learned. And as Paul says, look, God did those things with them and it was recorded so that you in your day would know how to walk through your own wilderness. And wilderness for us understanding biblically is life on this planet is a wilderness. We're not home yet. And even within our wilderness of life, we have many wildernesses that God puts us in and it's there 
where we apply the lessons of wilderness, God shapes and changes our hearts. Now, this morning is part two of the message Rob began last week. And it was at one of Israel's darkest, darkest moments. They're at Mount Sinai. Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. But y'all, when he's on the mountain, he's not just receiving Ten Commandments. He's receiving the constitution for the nation to know how they function in relationship with God and with each other. I mean, he's got blueprints he's getting for the tabernacle, rituals and and ceremonial laws that they will follow to be in relationship with God. And y'all, he's on the mountain for a while. And that's where we pick up the story last week in chapter 32, verse one, when it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, that's important. They saw that Moses delayed to come down. And so then they instructed Aaron, make a God for us. They made themselves an idol. Rob mentioned last week that the making of idols does not have to be, you know, the making of a golden calf or a physical object. That, that we make idols when we, when we go to anything other than God for our ultimate satisfaction. That, that's to make an idol. We, we go to something because we think that will satisfy the deepest ultimate longings of our heart, but that something isn't God. Rob mentioned our hearts are idol-making factories. He made this statement and it arrested me when I heard him say it. He said, your quest for fullness of life explains every decision you have ever made. And I had stopped and I went, whoa, you're saying every, my quest for fulfillment explains every decision I've ever made. And it's true. You understand that made in the image of God, you and I are made for significance, for eternal meaning and significance. We're made for that because we're made in God's image. And in the fall of Adam and Eve, that longing was not removed. It got distorted and our hearts got bent And so rather than finding meaning and significance in God, our hearts now turn to other things for that fulfillment and that longing. And sure enough, you think about it, you can no more escape the longing for meaning and significance than you could not be human. And therefore we keep looking for it and we look in the wrong places and make idols of those things that could never fully satisfy. Now, when we left the nation last, last week, you know, they're at the base of the mountain and it says they, you know, they're worshiping. It says they're playing. And this, this word, this Hebrew word around playing and, 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 and worshiping, it carries these sexual connotations. It is debauchery, you know, that's happening around the worship of this calf. And, and the people we, we would take based on their actions are thinking, this is life as it was meant to be but nothing could be further from the truth. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story in verses seven to 14 this morning. And may I say, y'all, we are gonna hear a conversation between 
God and Moses that is so mysterious and so profound. And within that conversation, we get a picture of the basis of our hope, why we have hope in life, and how it is that God is the fulfillment of all we long for. So two parts to the message. We're gonna go verses seven to 10 is gonna be the invitation, God's invitation. And then verses 11 to 14, I'm gonna call it Moses' intercession. So the first part, I'm gonna do just a verse basically at a time, and then I'm gonna take the whole second half. Here's where we go. Let's start with God's invitation. Look at verse seven. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Notice he speaks of Moses' people and Moses, you did this. This is not... This is not parents when they look at the spouse and go, your kids just ruined the blah, blah. This is not blaming that. This, this is your people, Moses, whom you led. Why, why is he saying it that way? Go back to what Rob said two weeks ago. God has so identified himself with Moses and Moses with God that when Moses acts, the people can, can't make a distinguish, they can't distinguish between did Moses do that or did God? What's the answer? Yes. And with that answer, here's what it's, it's showing us. God has so determined that he's gonna redeem a fallen humanity through a person. See, God, God is kind of setting the stage to say that he has bound himself to redeem humanity through a human being. And Moses is a picture of that, if you will. Then look at verses eight and nine. He says, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Major contrast here. From God's perspective, God said, oh my, how quickly they have turned. Like one moment we'll follow, yes, Moses, we'll follow these laws. The next moment they have turned from me. It's, it's like it happened in the blink of an eye from God's perspective. But do you notice the people's perspective? Chapter 32, verse one, when they realized Moses was delayed, so we now know Moses and God act as one. So basically the people are saying in their hearts, God, you're taking too long. <laughs> God's delay. Where is this Moses guy? He's been, so from the people's perspective, it's like God is so slow. Make us an idol. <laughs> from God's perspective, they have turned quickly. I think I'm gonna take God's perspective on this situation. But what this shows us from a very practical standpoint, that if, if making idols was their besetting sin, we know this, there's always a sin behind the sin. And so if making idols was their besetting sin, I wanna suggest that the sin behind that sin is impatience. Impatience. And some are saying, uh, impatience is a sin? Impatience is a sin. Wow, well, why is impatience a sin? Well, because think about it. 
impatience is rooted in unbelief. That's where impatience is rooted in unbelief. See, you got life happening and circumstances are going on and you're going, this is not the way I intended it to be. This is not the way God, I hoped you would make it to be. And so I'm gonna do this because impatience is rooted in unbelief. Abraham and Sarah, God promised. It didn't happen soon. They took it into their own hands, had a child through Hagar, who's been a thorn in Israel's side to this day. You remember the story of Saul, first king of Israel? Samuel anointed him and said, I want you to go take care of this business, which was destroying this king and all that was there. And then I will meet you there and I will make the sacrifices. Don't make sacrifices because you're the king, not the prophet or the priest. That's me. So you need to wait on me. Saul goes and has the battle. gets all the loot. He waits one day. He waits two days, three days, four days, five days. Six days, seven days, Saul says he's not coming, make the sacrifices. And right when he did, who shows up? Samuel. And Samuel says, Saul, I said, wait. Saul, impatient, didn't wait. And do you know what Samuel said to Saul because of that sin? Your kingdom won't last. I mean, it's, 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 it's huge. It cost him the kingdom. What cost him the kingdom? Impatience. You know, you think about impatience. Ultimately, it's about giving up control. So now we know why it's so hard. Because <laughs> it requires you and I to say, I'm not in control. And you know what it requires? And I'm going to unpack this a little bit later. But ultimately, our waiting is built upon two fundamental truths, God's character and God's promise. I mean, these are the two things upon which we, we can wait by the, in the power of the Spirit. And it's a rejection of those two things when we take things in our own hands. I mean, the Bible is just replete with passages about waiting. You know that. Isaiah 41, 31, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Psalm 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Y'all, if I read all the passages that say wait on the Lord, if I started right now, I, we would, I would dismiss you and I'd still have to be reading because I couldn't cover them all. And I gotta believe this, there's someone in the room right now well, I say this, all of us are waiting at some level, but maybe, may it be that someone's in the room waiting acutely and, and God's word to you today is this, Moses is not delayed on the mountain, i.e., God is not delayed in the power of the Spirit You can rest on his character and his promise. Well, let's go on to this conversation. Here, here's, the, here's this really odd statement, verse 10. Now, therefore, God speaking, now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them 
and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Oh, there's a lot in there. There's a great mystery in here. Uh, this, this one verse has, has confounded scholars for hundreds of years. I'm not gonna resolve it this morning. I will only reach out to say the study I've done and where I go to the, 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 the conservative evangelical scholars that, that, that I've studied would, would, would land here that this is not God's, this is not a command for Moses to obey to leave. It is actually an invitation for Moses to step up in his role as a mediator. Because this is whom God has appointed a mediator. And Moses is growing into that. Remember, he started out a little soft, right? Send someone else, et cetera. God is shaping him. And this is a moment in which he steps more fully into that mediating role. What do you mean mediating? Well, mediation is when there's two parties separated and a mediator helps bring them back together. Why do we know this isn't God commanding him to leave? Because he doesn't. Because God says, leave me alone. And Moses does the opposite. He comes at God. He, he engages God. So clearly Moses, who spoke with God as a friend, understand God is saying, engage me, Moses. And Moses does as a mediator. And that's what we see in verses 11 to 14. I'm gonna take that whole section in one reading. Look at verse 11 and following. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? So Moses is saying, they're your people and you did it. See, again, they're, they're so connected. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In all this land, I promise, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. You all, there is a very clear visual in this passage that I'm gonna awkwardly draw for you, but I think it helps us understand the text as a whole. And so when we look at this story, we, we, we notice they are, at a, they are at a mountain and there is God and there are the people. And we know this, God is holy and just. And we know that the people are sinful and God has said, stiff-necked. It's an agricultural term. You know, it's, it's the picture of a bull, you know, where you put the yoke on and the, and the owner saying, turn left. And, and you might as well try and push a building over to try and turn an ox's neck because you can't. You, a human being can't, you know, if it doesn't want to. And God is saying, this is my people. They are stiff-necked. The Bible makes clear, and this is what, you know, what, what, a, what a simple graphic. Holy God, sinful people. This space in between is called separation. Those two cannot go together. The Bible says that God in his justice and righteousness will 
rightly judge uh, evil and destroy evil. Well, you got good and you got evil down here and God's about to destroy them. He's about to wipe them out. The wages of sin is death and death is gonna fall on these people. So in this picture, you have God's wrath, the penalty of death. It is rolling down the mountain, y'all, toward the people. And in between the two, Moses steps in as mediator. See, see that picture? So there's the picture of what's happening. Now, Moses intercedes on two fundamental principles, God's character and God's promises. You and I learn to wait on the Lord based upon God's character and God's promises. Moses says, God, don't let the Egyptians ding your glory and your character by saying, you know, he's just like our gods. And, he, you know, actually, God just wanted to go kill his people. That sounds like something one of our gods would do, which is the way their gods function. And Moses says, don't. Don't let your name be dishonored, your character. And then he grabs the other one. And he says, and you made a promise. You made a promise to Abraham that through him <coughs> you would create a nation, have a, have a people, you would give him a land, and through those people, the whole world would be blessed. God, you promised according to your own name. What does that mean? Well, it means when, when people made promises, you would, you would you know, validate your promise based on whatever was greater than you, you know, I'm, I'm, I swear on my mom's grave. You know, that's a weird one, but it's kind of like my mom was a person of such character. I'm, I swear I'm gonna do this on her character. Well, there's no greater character than God. And so when God swears, makes a promise, he swears by his own name and character. <laughs> it's okay. It, it is okay to come to God and go, you promised. Because if there's anything that's impossible is that God would break his promise. Now, it gets clearer that Moses is mediator in verse 30. And I want you to skip down and look at verse 30. It says, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. Now note, note this, he's going, you've sinned, perhaps I can make atonement. And then he says, uh, then he goes to God and says, God, will you forgive them? So atonement and forgiveness are connected. Atonement, it, it, it's a biblical word. One way to think about it is, at one meant. What do you mean at one meant? Well, I mean this. Atonement carries this idea that there was at one time one. But one has become separated into two at odds. But atonement is that by which the two are made at one again. Does that make sense? Now think about the biblical story, humanity and God at one. Humanity sins, separated. Atonement is the means by which those separated parties are at one again. 
And Moses says it has to do with forgiveness, forgiveness of sin. The wages of sin is death, Moses says even here, but if not, please blot me out. Take, take me out of your book that you have written. So Moses is stepping in as mediator to say, in essence, take me, let, let me pay the penalty. Can I say that? Let me take the, let me take the wrath that's rolling down. Let it fall upon me and not them. And God says, no, thank you. Now, had Mo, you know, had, had, God, had God poured his wrath against sin on Moses, Moses would be eternally separated from God forever. Why? Because Moses had his own what? His own sin. And so God's wrath poured on Moses and the people at the base of the mountain would still be having to pay their own penalty because Moses couldn't satisfy God's wrath because he himself was sinful. And here we've come to the wilderness lesson in our story. So close your Bibles. I'm gonna invite the worship team back out and I'm gonna finish the message. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna like connect the dots here in a moment. Um, if you've got your uh, communion elements, please take them now. And if you will, I would encourage you to go ahead and peel it off. Now you're gonna have to hold this without spilling this on yourself. But take the bread and you can go ahead and peel off the, the juice cup and hold that carefully. I'm going to finish this little sketch drawing up here by connecting us to another mountain. So we note at Sinai, you have a holy God whose wrath is coming down on a sinful people. Moses intercedes now, God said no to Moses, but do you know what happened after that? After that, God said, here's what we're gonna do. And God instituted the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb. And y'all, for the next thousands of years, this is a lamb. Every year, Israel would take an unblemished male lamb and slit its throat and its blood would pour out. And when his blood, the blood of the lamb was poured out, life is in the blood. So the lamb died in the place of the people. And God said, that covers your sin for a year. And so year after 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 year, they had to slay the unblemished male lamb. What did they call that day every year? It was called the day of, say it, the day of atonement, you see. And so Moses knows that it's, it's pointing to 
something or someone. Now, how do, how do we know that? Well, in Deuteronomy, Moses says to the people, God will raise up a prophet from among you like me, listen to him. And so when we go forward from Mount Sinai, several thousand years, we come to another mountain. God, people, sin, holy. And on this mountain is another man in between the two. Only this time, this man is on a cross. And this man is the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, take me, Instead of them, God said yes, for this was his purpose and plan from before the beginning of the world. And so Jesus on the cross, right? We're on another mountain now. God's wrath is rolling down, y'all. And Jesus says, I'll pay the price for everyone's sin. And we know God accepted that obedience from Jesus because Jesus died. God's wrath poured out on him. He's buried and he remains in the grave for three days. But after three days, he rises again. Why? Because it would be unjust of God to allow death to hold a sinless person, which is why we say when Jesus rose from the dead, he, he validated that he had made full payment for sin. All the wrath of God on Jesus, your sin, my sin, all the sin of you poured on Jesus. God's wrath was, can I say, righteously exhausted. And therefore Jesus rises from the grave to say to you and I, if you'll put your trust in me, that what I did, I did for you. I, I lived the life you couldn't, holy. I died the death you deserved. I was separated from the Father for you. And if you'll trust that I did it for you, then your sins are all forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says. Why? Because if you're in Jesus, God's wrath has already been poured out on your sin. You'll never pay for your sin. You'll never be separated from God for one moment because of what Jesus has done. And so we come to this table week after week reminded that this is symbolic of Jesus, his body. On the night in which he was betrayed, he held it and said, this is my body broken for you. And so we stand this morning, y'all, with the benefit of this. And, and, and the people at the bottom of Mount Sinai didn't have, it wasn't, that, it wasn't time in redemptive history for them to know. But do you understand, you and I stand on the far side of even Calvary. And now we can look back at both mounts and go, oh my God. God in his mercy was saving us. Pictured through Moses, Moses is the shadow. Jesus is the substance, according to the book of Hebrews. Lord Jesus, for your body broken for us, prefigured all those many years before in the person of Moses. Jesus, you are the 
greater Moses, we give thanks. Take and eat. And when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. What do you mean the new covenant? Well, there's Mount Sinai and there's Calvary. (laughs) We're at Calvary where Jesus takes upon himself our sin and pays the penalty by shedding his blood. Life is in the blood. He died for us. Lord Jesus, for your blood given that we might never suffer the penalty of death, of separation from the Father, ever. Lord Jesus, we remember and we give thanks. Take 